0: Let's take a moment and let's, let's pray together in preparation for God's word. Father, we thank you and we bless you. That you are the resurrection and the life and we ask that you would now work life into our very souls. Cause us to see your life and to taste your life and to exchange it for nothing else. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Welcome. If you don't know me, I'm Pastor Gordon, and we are working as a church through the Gospel of John. So you come to us now. We're looking at John chapter 11. And uh, we'll be looking, actually, at verses 17 through 27. So we heard part of what, what we'll be looking at today but I encourage you, if you have a Bible, open it, follow along with me, and we've got handouts and overheads to assist as we go forward. I want to spend our time today reflecting mostly, actually, on a passage that we didn't hear read yet, which is from verses 25 through 26. So I'm going to read on from from 21 to the end of that little section there. Martha goes on to say, But even now I know that whatever you ask from God... Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. I think these two verses especially, but this whole passage is showing us, yes, Jesus is the resurrection and the life, but our main point will be that life in Jesus is our only hope in the face of death. Life in Jesus is our only hope in the face of death. And I'd like to work us through seven points to sort of draw this out or tease this out. We're going to march through this section. The first point is that Christian faith turns to Jesus for help. The first point is that Christian faith turns to Jesus for help. Look at verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, you had been here, my brother would not have died. Friend, it's simply important, and sometimes the application is really simple and straightforward. It is important that when we are facing difficulty, frankly, when we are facing any situation at all in life, our first instinct should be to turn to Jesus. That should be our first instinct. Mary and Martha very well may have also sent for a physician. We don't know. What we do know is that when Lazarus fell ill, they sent for Jesus. They turned to him. They turned to him for help. Now, friend, we do not always know what kind of help God will choose to send us or when he may send it. Oftentimes, I think that the three friends that he sent to Job were. Not perhaps the greatest of help. <laughs> but they were the help that God sent. And ultimately, God is glorified in their dialogue and in their conversation. It ultimately gives us one of the most glorious passages in scripture. We may not always recognize the help that God will send us. We may not know what kind he will send, it to, send us, nor do we know when he may choose to send it. Some of us have been waiting a long time and may wait longer still. But this should still be the basic instinct of all Christians. In all things, we turn first to Jesus to help, as Martha does here. So you have to ask yourself, I ask myself, am I as swift as Mary and Martha to turn to Jesus in the face of difficulty? Or have our imagined strengths, our wealth, our prosperity, Our friends, our medicine lulled us into imagining that we are not as dependent on him as, say, first century Jews. That that they probably needed Jesus more than we did because they did not have penicillin. Or that they needed Jesus more than we because they did not, after all, have light bulbs. This is nothing against penicillin or light bulbs. I like them both but it is a reminder that the Christian soul should always turn to Jesus. The 2,000 years after Jesus, we need Jesus just as much as they did then. As 6,000 years ago, at any time, we will always need Christ, especially in the face of death, because only Jesus has an answer to the crushing burden of sin and death, which brings us to our second point, Christian faith places no limits on Jesus' power or authority. Christian faith places no limits on Jesus' power or authority. Look at verse 22, 21 and 22. Look at verses 21 and 22. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Friend, sometimes it's hard to tell within a given story or even in in one line of dialogue what tone is being used or how that phrase is said, but we know that Martha's faith is an example of genuine, living, personal Christian faith. We know that because if you look down to verse 27, you'll see her confession. She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. So we know that this isn't just polite. She's not just saying, oh, you're such an amazing person. I'm sure you can get it done. Like This is an expression of real, genuine faith. She has assigned to Jesus a role that she gives to no other human being. So we may say that Christian faith turns to Jesus for help, and it does so placing no limits on Jesus' power or authority. In in essence, Martha here, I think, anticipates Paul's words in Ephesians 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. (laughs) Have you ever just taken a moment to he is able to do more than I am able to ask. God is able to do more than I am able to think of. I, there's a number of times that my wife and I will sit down and we'll talk through a situation and we'll try and come up with what are we going to do? And I'll list out, well, here are the four possibilities. We could do this, we could do this, we could do this, we could do this, and I will think that I have exhausted them, but the older I get, the more I realize I have not exhausted the number of things that could be done. God is so far beyond even that. There is, we could combine all of our thoughts together, and they would not match what God is able to do. It is more, more than we could ever ask Or even think. That is what I mean when I say the Christian places no limits on Jesus' power. We do not withhold from Jesus any possibility outside of his holy character. And We must add to this that Christian faith also does not place limits on Jesus' authority. Meaning a Christian does not demand of God a particular solution. On the one hand, God is able to do more abundantly than we could ever ask or think or imagine. His power is beyond our comprehension. But sometimes we have a tendency to try and leverage his power. We try to lean on his authority. No, the Lord can do whatever the Lord will do. And it is good and right that the Lord should do what the Lord will do. Martha, in this case, does not specify what she wants Jesus to do. Which I find really interesting. Partially because Jesus usually asks people what they want him to do for them. And Jesus does not do that here. This is a very interesting situation. Martha, in this case, does not specify what she wants Jesus to do. She turns to him to see what he will choose to do. She says, I know that even now, God will do whatever you ask. I remember when I was reading in the book of Hebrews that Abraham, when he goes to sacrifice Isaac, the author of Hebrews gives us insight into Abraham's mind that, we don't have it says abraham believed that god was able even to raise isaac from the dead that he was willing to sacrifice his son because he was convinced that god would keep his promise he would even raise isaac from the dead and i i said to myself like i would never have come up with that (laughs) i might have gone out of mere obedience but i don't know that i would have concluded no god will keep his promise even if it means raising my son from the dead and here martha doesn't specify what she wants jesus to do She wants him to do what Jesus will do. And that's because, thirdly, Christian faith lives in light of the last day. Christian faith lives in light of the last day. Look at verses 23 and 24. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again. In the resurrection, on the last day, Now, throughout this gospel, John is infamous for having Jesus speak at various levels of meaning. Usually, his disciples take the most literal form of whatever he says, but we usually see that there's several other intended meanings. When he says, your brother will rise again, we know that Jesus does intend to raise Lazarus from the dead now. When he says, your brother will rise again, he means... Right now, I'm going to go and raise him. But Martha is not wrong to assert what she knows to be true from Scripture. And this is how you see her Christian faith burning in her soul. She knows that Lazarus will be raised by God on the last day. There's two elements at least to this response. In the first place, Martha is right. She is confessing a profoundly biblical theme with some of my favorite verses standing behind it. Job, for instance, insists in Job 19, 25 through 27, for I know that my redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. Job confesses a physical, bodily resurrection by and to a personal redeemer. And Isaiah says of God in chapter twenty-six, nineteen, in contrasting the nation of Israel's inability to save themselves, he says, but to God, your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. And I like to think that in this moment, with Martha's eyes glazed with tears, she is also holding hard to Daniel 12, 1 and 2. Where Daniel hears in a vision, but at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. In short, right here, Martha is living like a Christian. She is focusing her eyes not on the immediate and seeming irrevocability of death. That's not what's grasped her attention. She is looking through that, and focusing on God who raises the dead. So that's one element of this response, and it's, the, it's a right element of this response. We should imitate that response. But the second, or I should say before I finish, in this right response, we have a parallel for our own faith. We should imitate this. The Christian simply must not live as though death is the end. And by consequence, that means Christians reject the notion of living only for today. I don't know what your feelings are about the movie The Dead Poets Society, but the phrase carpe diem, seize the day, live for now, live for this moment, is a fundamentally not Christian idea. We don't live for today. We're living for the next kingdom. We're living out of what happened in Christ behind us, and we're living for what Christ will bring us in the future. That means we also give ourselves, we don't give ourselves over to abject materialism, like the world in which we live. We are not engaged in pursuit of comfort at any cost. Instead, we want our lives to count towards the glory of God. We want to live in light of the final judgment, and still more, the final reward. Death, while it is terrible and sorrowful, is not the end, and we mustn't live as though it is, even though the rest of the world is. We should look at life with the same fundamental confidence that Martha has, saying, Lord, I know we will rise again on the last day. But what is perhaps mistaken or wrong, I'm not sure exactly, in Martha's response, is that having confessed that God will do anything that Jesus asks, she is reluctant to embrace his word. She assumes he cannot mean now, at least that's the tone that I hear. She said, I, I know he will be raised on the last day. It is as though she assumes he cannot mean now, and she fails to assign to Jesus the same power that she ascribes certainly to God. And friends, what I see here is that we must not gainsay God's word in our heart. Calvin puts it this way he says on the one hand we must not without the authority of God's word drink in empty hopes which will prove to be nothing but wind and on the other hand when God opens his mouth it is not proper that we should find our hearts either blocked up or too firmly closed in essence Having said that God is able to do more than we could ever think, ask, or imagine, that his works go beyond our meager ability to comprehend. When God speaks his people, listen, when Jesus says, your brother will rise again, we give to Christ the power to accomplish his word. We must beware the instinct to relegate the power and purposes of God only to the coming age, only to others, only to tomorrow, but never today. Or to dissociate the promise of God from the power and the word of the Son of God. To imagine that somehow we can trust in God without trusting in Jesus. If you genuinely believe that God can raise the dead, and if you genuinely believe that God can resurrect the souls of dead sinners, then we can evangelize, because God raises dead people to life. All this is because of big point four, which is that Christian faith must be personally focused on Jesus himself. Christian faith must be personally focused on Jesus himself. Look at Jesus' response in verse 25 to Martha's good saying. She says, I know that my brother will rise from the dead, right? Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me... Though he die, yet shall he live. Friends, the Christian faith is a personal faith, meaning the object of our faith is not a series of doctrines or ideas, however helpful those might be to show us that object. The ultimate object of our faith is a person. Christians are those who believe in Jesus, personally, specifically, concretely, that particular person. Christians aren't just those who believe in life after death. Christians aren't just those who set aside from, we were not pursuing materialism because we're going to live a different way, a more moral way, a better way, a purer way, a cleaner way, a way that Jesus would have lived. No, we believe in Jesus, the person, the actual person, the historical person, the one who taught. And this, I believe, is Jesus' gentle correction to Martha. Oh, it's so easy for me to abstract and and sort of hold my doctrines over here almost at arm's length from where I am at just that moment. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Yes, you believe in the resurrection. I am the resurrection. I'm that thing that you're talking about. He calls her to focus her hopes and her trust, not so much in a semi-distant future, nor in a kind of over-realized present expectation, but in Jesus himself. To put her hopes in the basket of what Jesus will do and what Jesus will say. kind of faith that comes out of the centurion where he says but say the word lord and my servant will be healed that kind of faith that puts all of its hope on what that man right there will do and say absolutely confident that what he says always happens and this really honestly is the core of this passage that jesus himself Is the resurrection and the life of God. He is what the Christian faith loves. He is what the Christian faith anticipates. He is what we are longing for. Whereas sometimes, yes, we are longing for a world that is fixed and not like our world, or we're longing for a physical body that's not like the one that we have now, or we're longing for circumstances to change. Yes, yes, all these are under that overarching desire A true Christian is one who just wants Jesus. So by this, we mean that Christians should not be characterized by belief or doctrine abstracted from Jesus. We have a saying, we say, he is so heavenly minded that he's of no earthly good, and what we mean is that someone is so focused on distant or often pious or idealistic things or thoughts that they cannot see the real needs that are right in front of them. Such a person has abstracted their faith from their life. Right? To be too heavenly minded to be of of no earthly good is to abstract your faith from your life. In this case, Jesus is warning us about abstracting our faith from him. Perhaps we could say to be so doctrinally minded that you are not actually a Christian. Full of right orthodoxy, but yet no real orthopraxy. The Christian faith simply cannot survive without the person of Jesus Christ. All our efforts, all our hopes, all our plans, they hang on him. When Paul tells the church in Corinth, therefore, keep on doing well, knowing that in the Lord your work is not in vain, that in the Lord is critical. If Christ is not risen, he goes on to say, we have no hope. All our good work is for nothing. All our eschewing materialism will bring us no benefit. There is no kingdom to which we are going. Without Jesus Christ, the Christian faith A Christian can no more hope to move or work in this life disconnected from Christ than a hand can hope to move or work disconnected from the arm. How so? Friends, the beginning of our new life is dependent on Christ. It is Christ's word that speaks new life into our hearts. Just as when Christ will say to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth, he speaks into our hearts. He says, Gordon, come alive. And when he speaks, my heart comes alive. So... The beginning of our life is dependent on Christ. It's Christ's word that calls forth new life. It causes faith to stir in our dormant soul. It is Christ who has purchased our freedom from sin's penalty. If Christ did not go to the cross, I have no freedom. No one else can go to a cross and substitute himself on my behalf. There is no other suitable candidate. Only Christ can go and Christ must go. And it is the spirit of Christ who strengthens and equips us to effect his holy will. Jesus says, don't be afraid. I will send my spirit to you. Without his spirit, I cannot do what he asks. I cannot hope in him, and I cannot hope to see the next kingdom. It is by Christ that we live. It is for Christ that we strive. For the Christian, Christ is our all in all. And without Christ, friend, your riches will perish. Your fame will die. And all other things will prove meaningless. Christ is all you have, now or ever. No one then should take up the Christian faith like they take up a hobby, as though it were something to interest them or amuse them. We take up the Christian faith because we want to know Jesus, because without it, we will die. And so here Jesus says in a way, don't just hope and believe in a resurrection or some kind of future life that hopefully we're all moving towards. Believe in me. I am the resurrection and the life. And that is the heart of the matter. Brings us to the fifth point. Resurrection is a physical restoration and renewal of what has been damaged by sin. Resurrection is a physical restoration and renewal of what has been damaged by sin. Look at verses 25 and 26. Again, they are the heart of this passage, and they contain two ideas that I want to spend the rest of our time on, that Jesus is the resurrection and Jesus is the life. Look at verses 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, i am the resurrection and the life whoever believes in me though he die yet he shall live and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die do you believe this these are two ideas set in parallel idea one i am the resurrection connected to The one, though he die, yet shall he live, right? If you die, Christ will raise you. The second idea is that he is the life, that everyone who lives and believes shall never die. In some sense, to have Christ is to avoid death. And then, do you believe this? That Jesus is the resurrection means that for whoever believes in him, though he die, yet shall he live. It means that death is not the end. It is merely a stop along the way, however unpleasant. That Jesus is the life means that whoever believes in him, for them, that resurrection has already begun from the inside out. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 19 says, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day so one way to describe this tension our outer self wasting away and our inner self being renewed day by day one way to describe that is with the words already and not yet there are some elements of what jesus has done which the christian experiences immediately that he senses or she senses already in the here and the now and this is what he's speaking about typically when he says the life he is the life there are elements of the christian experience that we experience immediately when we trust in jesus and there are other realities which remain to be fully or perfectly experienced in the future i.e the resurrection but honestly it's not as simple as that because both of these realities overlap so you need to kind of think of like a massive venn diagram in your mind one which is the resurrection and one which is the life and there's overlapping space between the two. Resurrection typically and properly refers to the physical restoration and renewal of our bodies on the last day. That's what it typically refers to. But it also refers to the radical renewal of our inward being. Even now. And the life that Jesus refers to typically refers to the immediate new and ever-increasing presence of God's life in our inward being. The resurrection in some sense of the soul. But it also refers to the unending and ever-increasing reality of knowing and loving God forever. And so in both the resurrection and the life there's an already and a not yet. Now. Let's examine each of these. First, resurrection. Resurrection refers primarily, as we have said, to the restoration and renewal of the body. If you want to annoy all your friends, you can tell them that this section is is mistitled because Lazarus is not resurrected here. He is resuscitated. Now, you might say, well, that's just quibbling over details. friend." I hope that I am not raised in the body that I die in. I bet you some of you do too. (laughs) I am looking to a new body. Not like this body, says 1 Corinthians 15. No, this is a resuscitation. Jesus causes the soul of Lazarus to come back to the body of Lazarus on this earth. He does not resurrect him as he will all souls on the last day. It is... That is a world different. When Jesus rises from the dead, he is the first resurrected body that we have ever seen. His body walks through walls. His body doesn't obey locks. His body can ascend to heaven. His body can eat fish. His body can do all sorts of stuff. It's totally different. There's nothing like what Lazarus is when he walks out of the grave clothes. Friend, we must always remember that resurrection is a wonderful, beautiful, physical, corporeal reality that we are waiting for in the next kingdom. And that's why I define it this way. Resurrection is a physical restoration and a renewal of everything that has been damaged by sin. And the need for resurrection is palpable. You feel it all the time. It is all around you. Everything around us and in us as a result of sin is in a state of constant decay. Everything is moving from order to disorder as my household, just because of the fact of having small children, and it constantly reminds me. (laughs) It's moving from order to disorder, shrinking into death. And as a result, our life is characterized by loss. We lose things. We lose experiences. We lose memories. We lose delights. We lose people. We lose loves. We lose life. The only way I could make it palpable is with a personal experience, my own sense of losing home my father took a job in another state and we moved and that's not something that's unusual in this day but for me it was deeply significant I grieved the loss of the home that I grew up in and I thought in my young mind that if I could just get back to that place that I would remedy the pain that I felt inside that all the disordered bits in my life would suddenly come back into order I everything would work again my parents wisely sent me back some time later to visit, only to find that my home was completely changed. Nothing was as it had been. Not just the physical surroundings, although they were completely different as well. It was no longer home. And in God's providence, this was the first step to me realizing what it means to be a spiritual exile that my home is not here, but it's in the next kingdom. But it also was the first step in my understanding of what resurrection really is and means. Because while home is to a degree an idea, there is a very tangible part of it. It it would not be, that's dangerous to say, so, talking about things of God and getting words right is hard. Um, I do not think it would be right or fitting if God were to create the idea of home but not the place. Just like it would be not full or right for Him to talk about new life but not new embodied life, to give us a new life in our soul but not a body. It, God intends to remake the broken physical nature of things to give us the place. And that's, we are embodied souls. We are nefesh. We are not like God in that sense. God is spirit. And we long for spiritual truth to wear the clothes of physical reality. And that's why you cannot properly restore what sin has damaged without a resurrection. And incidentally, it is one of the reasons that in order to do so, God took on a human nature and a body. So again, everything is in a state of decay because sin has permeated every crack and crevice of creation. It has corrupted every fiber of the tapestry of life. There is nothing that is unaffected. And we feel that corruption. We feel it daily. We feel it in aging, in sickness, and most of all, crowning in death. Lazarus' death is the unavoidable proof that things are not right, that things are not as they should be, that death is not natural for all the shouting that the evolutionary mindset wants to insist upon. Death is not the way it was supposed to be. It is an unwelcome catastrophe that arouses the wrath of a holy God. It is the just penalty for an infinite rebellion against a holy God. For Lazarus' death to be properly undone, he cannot simply be restored to the body he once had as here, a body bent under the burden of sin, a body that would again die. Instead, in the resurrection, his body, like his soul, must be made new. My friends, Jesus looks straight into the face of death, disorder, and chaos, and he promises resurrection, not resuscitation, resurrection. And he raises Lazarus from the dead as a foretaste, as a sign that on that one day, he will not merely raise us in the body that we had on earth. He will raise us entirely new. Resurrection is not reanimation. It is renovation. It goes beyond cleaning out the dirt and sand and the crevices of an old building to entirely new construction. For some of us, resurrection will mean that we can run for the first time. For others of us, it will mean that we can run again For some of us, it means we will see the first time, and for others, that we will see again. But for all of us, it will be the first time that we have ever seen anything with eyes undimmed by human sin or tears. It will be our first step on feet that do not hasten to shed blood. It will be our first taste with a tongue that does not twist truth. It will be all new. And Jesus promises that for those who trust themselves, heart, body, mind, and soul to him, this new life begins by grace right now, and it never ends. Sixth point, new eternal spiritual life is the first taste and enduring savor of resurrection. The second part of Jesus' claim is not only that he is the resurrection, but that he is the life. So look at verse 26 again. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And this is set in parallel with his claim to be the resurrection and the life. If resurrection speaks properly to the final reality that is inaugurated by that last day, then life speaks most properly to the foretaste of that reality that comes in the resurrection of the heart from death to sin. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1 through 7, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. Together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. Do you see the intentional parallel of resurrection language? And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Paul speaks of our new life by God's grace through faith in Jesus as a resurrection of the soul from death in sin. If resurrection is an outer renewal, then this life is inward transformation. If in the resurrection we will see things with eyes unstained by sin, then in the new life that Jesus begins in us, we suddenly become sensible of our present weakness. We long for that new world. We critically become capable of participating it, of anticipating it, even now. The life that Jesus speaks is an ever-increasing beam of light into what was once a completely darkened soul. It is an ever-increasing strength to struggle against the weight and burden of sin. It is that life which enables a Christian not only to look forward to the next kingdom, but to anticipate it, even to embody it, even now. It means that at no time following the conversion of the heart by the grace of God into a new life of faith, will we ever be separated from the life, strength, and love of God? The only illustration I could think of, and I must be brief, is like ROTC. He has no ROTC. It's a a program in college where young men and women get ready for the military forces, and they wear the uniforms, they they practice uh, the formations, and they practice duties, and they have outings. Are they in the military yet? No. Sort of, though. You're embodying it. You take on the uniform. You practice the ranks. You speak like it. You anticipate you're building your whole life with, like, I'm going to go and serve the military. That's where I'm going. That's what I'm going to do. Friends, that's kind of like a Christian. Christians are, as it were, in ROTC for the next kingdom. We get to wear the uniform. We get to have the brains, We get to start using the language. We get to live our whole life with anticipation of where we're going and what we're going to do, We're just not there yet. But we can do it confident because of the last point. Jesus is the life of his people. In Ecclesiastes, the author says almost to his despair that apart from God, everything is... Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. He says this as he goes on through the book that nothing endures because nothing lives on, because everything dies and because sin, which is the abandonment of the greatest glory, the glory of God for any other glory, severs us from that purposeful existence. It deceives us into thinking that we can somehow exist or have meaning apart from God as though anything can exist for its own sake, as though food exists only for its own sake, or money, or intimacy, or anything. But apart from God, we are all dying. We are disintegrating in selfishness, like a dying star imploding under its own weight. It is impossible to have or truly enjoy life apart from Jesus, because as Jesus says, He is the life. If we're to experience that, that awesome and utterly transformative power, what must we do? We must believe. But believe what? Well, in the most basic sense, we need to believe and embrace the gospel. We need to believe that Jesus Christ was God of very God and that he came and he lived the life that you and I should have lived but couldn't and that he died the death that you and I deserve to die but haven't. And that God raised him from the dead as a promise of new life to everyone who trusts in him. Who take Jesus' life and death in place of their own. But in a more nuanced sense, it means to take the words of Jesus and to set our life within their frame. It means learning to live for Jesus our greatest joy and treasure. It means living now as though the future were already here. In this particular conversation, Jesus is calling Martha to personalize her faith. To move from merely trusting that God will someday restore all things to saying that Jesus, standing in front of her, will personally restore all things. To say that Jesus is her life. Jesus is her hope. Jesus is her Lord. Jesus is her Savior. So how might that affect us today? You can trust Jesus to raise those who died in him. Jesus is the salve to our grief. You can trust Jesus to raise those who died in him. You can trust Jesus to deliver you through the fear of death. You scared of dying? I am. I hadn't watched anyone die until I became a pastor. It's scary. Jesus can carry you through that. I watched a woman, she's cancer all through her body. She's in so much pain, they have her drugged up so she can hardly think. But in the midst of it all, I knew that she knew Jesus. She just kept on clinging to him day after day after day until finally Jesus came, took her hand, and took her to his kingdom. Jesus can carry you through that. You should, thirdly, be able to trust Jesus to deliver souls from death. The human soul is too heavy an object to be lifted by entertainment. It's too heavy an object to be lifted by oratory. It can only be lifted by Jesus. Fourthly, you can trust Jesus to restore good things that were lost. Have you lost something? Something that you wish for all the world you could get back? If it is a good thing, if it is a right thing, Jesus will restore it to you. He will give back what is lost. Fifthly, you can trust Jesus to make you content in all circumstances. Paul says whether he's in poverty or in pain, Jesus is enough. And sixthly, you can trust, to make, trust Jesus to make all things new which I think is probably my favorite Bible verse, Revelation 21, verse 5. Behold, I make all things new. Friend, for the Christian, once we have been born again from the heart by new life in God's spirit, we will never be separated from God again. Death becomes merely the threshold into the presence of God because for those who believe, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. May Almighty God, who first spoke into the darkness and caused light to shine, speak now in our hearts and command new life to spring up from the roots of our soul. Exchange out our dead and dying hearts for new, living, breathing hearts of flesh. And God, give us a hope. Give us eyes to see that next kingdom. And oh Lord, be pleased to gather with all your saints, all those who have gone before us, to sit at that great table, all of us, in that new kingdom. Give us your life. Give us your resurrection. Do it for Jesus' sake. Amen. If you're able,